from Green Biz Group. Welcome to a special cross-country holiday edition of Green Biz 350. I'm senior writer Lauren Hepler in Berkeley, California. In this week's food-focused episode, we'll cover why investors are urging large food companies to crack down on water pollution, glimpse into the world of sustainable coffee, and take a look back at some of the most interesting conversations in food from the past year. Plus, with Black Friday upon us, we'll look at waste in the apparel industry and what some design houses are doing to respond to the problem. We've got plenty to be thankful for this week on 350. It's November 23rd, 2016, the day before Thanksgiving, and stepping in this week for executive editor Joel McCower is our senior writer, Heather Clancy, live from New Jersey. How's it going, Heather? Hello from chilly Jersey. Oh, have you got <laughs> great. snow on the ground yet? It's been, uh, it went from being almost 65, 70 degrees on Saturday to all of a sudden overnight being really chilly in the 30s. So yeah, we've had snow flurries and it's finally looking like Thanksgiving here yeah, I on guess the East Coast. It's that time, the roller coaster and temperatures. But Ah, yes, you got it. Uh-huh. Well, before we get into food, food and more food and the stories from this week, I did want to take a second. Obviously, we're coming off of a busy week in sustainability with the COP22 climate talks wrapping up in Marrakesh over the weekend. Um, so obviously the the events in Marrakesh didn't unfold quite as planned with the shock upset victory of Donald Trump in the U.S. presidential election. Um, I had a piece this week that we'll link to in the show notes sort of about how the, the Paris Agreement is definitely alive, but looks like it may be headed for a period in limbo. Basically, we saw the 200 nations that were in Marrakesh uh, sort of agree to to move forward. They, they pledge continued action to work towards curbing emissions over the next century. Some companies in some countries in particularly vulnerable areas trying to move faster toward that goal. Um, so a quick update there that will certainly continue to follow. But in the meantime, let's jump right in to some festive food stories. So to kick off our food coverage, we actually had a pretty timely story this week, Heather, that you worked on, which was about investors sort of wading into water pollution issues in the food industry. Maybe not quite as festive as I promised at the outset of the show, but still important. So can you tell us a little bit about what's going on here? Not festive necessarily, but timely because everyone thinks about food in the U.S. around Thanksgiving. So so the uh, the quick and short explanation is that Ceres and the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, they've been focusing, I mean, one of the things that they focus on is water. And um, they have had for the last couple of years some um, campaigns around conservation, right? Uh, convincing some of the larger food processing and specifically meat processing companies in the world to get a better handle on how much water they use. Now they're refocusing their attention on the quality of the, of the water that they're uh, releasing back into the environment. Um, they, this week, series um, was behind a series of letters, no pun intended, that went out to car Cargill, JBS, Purdue Farms, and Smithfield, those are four of the biggest meat producers in the world. And the letters were not necessarily from Ceres, but they were from 
institutional investors. There were several dozen of them, actually 45, if the number serves me, uh, representing $1 trillion in assets. And these guys want the companies in, 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 in consideration to do more to, to protect against potential contamination. So these letters went out. They're very focused um, for each company. But the, the bottom line is they want more attention to um, how these manure ponds, for example, of hog farms or chicken farms are managed um, and how water is put back into the, the groundwater systems. So that happened yesterday, Monday. Um, and there's already been some pretty some pretty aggressive responses from the, the people that were targeted. Um, Cargill had a, a note out. Um, they they've noted that they have um, worked on on the, the quality excuse me the quantity of, of um, water they're using for example in North America they have reduced it by 15 percent over the last decade now they're working on upgrades to their wastewater systems um, they're working on recycling um, and they're also working with their supply chains um, to to help the growers, right, the, the people that are um, growing the feed for their animals um, get to get a better handle on what they're putting back into the system. So, you know, letter writing, hmm, is, is that an effective mechanism? Well, sure, sure is when people are thinking about food and these things went out yesterday. So good public relations campaign on Siri's part. That's what I was going to say. I'm having a little bit of deja vu. I think I feel like I've heard so much about letters in the past couple of weeks, people sending letters to Donald Trump, letters from Marrakesh and, and COP22. But I did also want to mention, you note in the story that um, this isn't completely unprecedented territory for the food industry. Similar shareholder proposals have been leveled at Tyson and Hormel. Is that right? Yeah, so there have been specific proposals already, and this is building on that, right? So this is, you know, taking advantage of, of you know, a couple things. There's a couple of very, um, if you will, imperatives that have happened. One is that those shareholder proposals have increased, and um, Hormel um, is actually one of the companies that's that's, that's responding um, pretty quickly. I mean, none of these guys have really said exactly how they're they're. They're changing their their methods. They've just merely promised to to work on it, if you will. Um, but the other thing that happened was that, that um, there was a really specific example of how Hurricane Matthew, um, I think it was in North Carolina, the the floodwaters there overflowed about several dozen of these. Excuse me, it was fourteen, so that's more than one dozen. But um, of these manure ponds that you're talking about, and they they sort of um, made the problem a lot more visible, let's just say, um, you know, they, even though these, these companies are trying to manage them, um, events like that, where, where they have no control over the water goes, uh, are likely to happen more often. Definitely. We'll keep an eye on, on the tide of, of water pollution sentiment in the food industry. But in the meantime, I wanted to switch gears to a fun piece that our reporter and podcast producer, Soraya Melkonian, put together this week for her series that goes by the name Video Vault. Um, so she basically surfaced a few conversations, mostly from our past events you've heard on this podcast before, about our Verge series, which looks at the intersection of sustainability and technology 
as well as our annual Green Biz event in Arizona. Um, and Soraya pulled together a few different videos, uh, really interesting talks from, from those events, looking at sort of food for thought. Um, basically, uh, we know that there are these larger systemic issues when it comes to food, a large carbon footprint of meat it would be one instance, but also um, there's been a lot of talk in the past couple of years about the link between the decline in the bee population and climate change. So there's all sorts of interesting little angles that you can approach the issue from. Um, but Heather, I know you, uh, just from this year's Verge event alone, like you saw some of the food conversations and even wrote about them. Is that right? Yeah. And I think that the, the, I, I was, I forget who was, I guess I was, um, I was on a couple of different policy, uh, webcasts last week. And one of the, one of the, um, speakers was focusing on just, you know, and it's not, it's not really a new story, right? But it's, it's a reminder of how much the agricultural industry um, uses in terms of natural resources and how, unless we think of new approaches, not just better ways of doing the old things, um, that we're not going to be able to change much as far as how much water um, the industry uses or how much, how many, you know, the methane caused by by cattle and um, and by and the nutrients that come from the runoff of fertilizer, right? That that's being used to to grow feed for these for these creatures that we rely on. Um, so I think the the conversation is just people are looking at what's on their plate in a, in a much more different way. In the past, um, I'm hearing in my own personal circle, I have a lot more friends that are, that are exploring vegetarian, um, or meatless Monday, if you will, you know, habits and just changing their habits in, in a way that, that is more thoughtful for the environment. Right. It really is this sort of central force that's at, at the center of our, well, and, and, you know, it's funny. And I, and I want to bring up one example cause I, it was just fascinating. Um, you know, I, I love Japanese feed, food, so I'm not unfamiliar with the idea of eating seaweed. Right. But, um, there was, uh, an ex- great example um, offered at Verge uh, this this past um, September, where there was a farm that was this growing seaweed for specific um, protein, uh, you know, like seaweed kelp, for example. So, I love the ideas that people are coming up with just to think differently. Because again, it's not this. Don't just do the same old in a better way. We've got to think about ways of changing the protein that comes into our bodies and. And, and looking at resources that we haven't really looked at in a very different way. So food is one issue for sure, but there's also the broader agricultural picture to think about at this time of year. And one story that we ran this week from our friends over at Civil Eats uh, really struck a chord with me as someone who is on her third cup of coffee by mm-hmm. noon. Um, and that was a look at 10 of the most sustainable coffee businesses in the United States. Heather, we were just talking off air. I think you, you were also looking at this one with some some keen interest. Well, I'll, and I'll just give you a little backstory that you don't know about me, but my father used to be a cocoa and um, coffee buyer for MNMR. So he oh, used to no spend way. a lot of time at farms and so forth in Brazil and the, and the Ivory Coast and so forth. So I'm just... I. I, I too, this is my vice. Coffee is my vice. But um, I was just looking at this list and thinking, wow, I got to go to Wisconsin. There's a couple of um, businesses there that I never even realized. You know, I, yeah. just, I wouldn't have, I would not have picked that as a state where you would find not one, but what, two, 
two of the, the companies on this list are from Wisconsin, Kickapoo right. Coffee Roasters. Yeah, this example of Kickapoo Coffee Roasters is interesting. It looks like they actually got um, a federal tax break, 30% tax break, to convert their roasting facility to one that's powered by solar. Um, so they have an 80 panel array hooked up to the local grid. Um, and then they, they got this $25,000 tax credit. Uh, mm-hmm. so that's pretty interesting. And then we've also got examples of Portland, of course, how could you not have a Portland company on a coffee list? Um, and then Equator Coffee and Tea right here in Northern California. Um, they're a certified B corporation and focus heavily on sort of partnerships throughout their supply chain. Uh, and then again, with sort of the energy efficient roasting processes. Mm-hmm. And these are much, these are small independent organizations, right? They're, uh, uh, are all of them, I don't think all of them are B Corps, but they're all explicitly um organized with the idea that you can make money doing this in a different way. And I love that because again, like I said, again, I think it's, it's in, especially in States like Wisconsin, right. Which are typically, um, you know, a state that you might associate with red, if you will, and, right. and, and not necessarily a hotbed for sustainable businesses. But here we got, we got, we got great examples of innovation and, and entrepreneurship, Right. And the one example of a bigger company that I thought was interesting, I didn't actually know this, is Pete's Coffee and Tea, another California-based company but that does have locations throughout the country. And they actually, I guess, have a LEED Gold certified roasting facility where they roast 100% Hmm. of their coffee. And that's right here in Alameda, Alameda. California. Uh, Yeah, right mm -hmm. by Oakland. So I don't know. Maybe we need to do a tour over there. That's going to be my takeaway (laughs) from this. Well, it's interesting to me because, I I mean, I love that – and I, I think uh, I, I, won't, I can't speak to the Pete's versus Starbucks uh, rivalry because I know there's a big one out there and it's just we don't really have Pete's out here. So I can't speak to it. But it, it should be interesting to see if any of these organizations use this as a marketing um, uh, leverage point, you know, or if it's just simply a matter, hey, they're doing business and, and this just happens to be the way they do business. Um Personally, I think that I, I like the latter because it just means that these are these are successful organizations on their own right, and they operate in a completely sustainable fashion. Um, and I love that proof point because it just to me it's like every time someone can do that without necessarily, um, you know, going over the top with with their environmental agenda. It just it shows other more mainstream entrepreneurs that maybe this is the right path, period, end of story, you know, full stop, even if, if they don't happen to buy into um, the environmental marketing benefits or aspects of, of the organization. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm sold. Cup number four, here I come. <laughs> I, if I have any more, I won't go to sleep tonight. So I'm, <laughs> I'm later than you are. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm done. I'm cut off. I'm cutting myself off. <laughs> So food is on the brain this week, but let's switch gears for a minute and talk fashion. Our intrepid associate editor, Anya Halsemeiser, took an interesting look this week at a program underway at the design house Eileen Fisher. The title of the story was Eileen Fisher has designs on keeping clothing out of landfills. So to talk clothes and circular economy, Anya is here right now. How's it going, Anya? 
Hey, Lauren. I'm doing great. I'm excited for the holiday. And um, as many people are uh, gearing up for Black Friday, which is the other retail happy holiday that um, where prices are slashed. And uh, there is another hidden toll that people don't really think about, which is the toll that Black Friday takes on the environment. And so in this vein, we wanted to run a story about um, a design house that's doing something completely different and innovative to battle um the amount of waste and uh, and also toxic waste that comes from the garment and fashion industry. Definitely. So we'll get into this. Uh, the program is called Green Eileen. We'll get into that in a second. But I did want to ask you in general about sort of the issue of waste in the fashion industry as a whole. What do we know? Are there sort of specific statistics in terms of the scale we're talking about with the issue uh, of waste in apparel? Yeah, so... Um, I read some statistics that are pretty staggering. The average U.S. citizen throws away um, about 70 pounds of clothing um, and other textiles per year. And that was like 21 billion pounds in 2009, which is um, the most recent data that I've read. But also the amount of uh, clothing that's being thrown out is it just it grows year by year. And there are a lot of uh, a lot of factors that go into this, also including the the growth of the middle class, people buying more, and uh, fast fashion um, brands becoming more popular. So um, by 2019, people are going to throw away like 35.4 billion pounds of garments, and um, most of this, you know, almost uh, 85% goes to landfills. So not a lot of clothing is actually being recycled. Um, although do people do people do sorry donate clothes and um, but against this number, it turns out that only 5% of clothing is totally unusable for, for reuse or recycling in some way. So there's a lot that could be done with, uh, with this clothing that's just going to landfill. Mm-hmm. And when you think about sort of the, the volume of material in play here and sort of the obvious, um, not only material waste, but economic waste of just throwing away clothes year after year, um, the, the it does make me think of sort of this broader circular economy trend where you have people thinking about keeping materials, repurposing them through the supply chain. Um, but what are some of the barriers in terms of retail businesses participating in those models? Absolutely. So um, there is actually kind of an issue with recycled garments. Um, it's difficult to do it. Um, I don't know the specific. I don't remember the specifics, but um, there is some uh, some issues with recycling um, fibers, and uh, it, it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of money and a specialization among uh, waste streams to do it. So not a lot of companies actually um, invest in in that. Um, but companies do some companies like Patagonia um, have been known or have been in recent years uh, gearing up their initiatives for recycling. Um, companies like H&M and Zara, you can go and drop off your un- unneeded clothing and they'll uh, they'll recycle it for you. Um, but that's also something that it's a it's kind of like an add on to the business. Um, but what's different about green Eileen is that it's a step. It's the business model is run entirely based on recycling fabric. So tell us a little bit about it. What is green Eileen and how is it sort of, um, similar and different to the Eileen Fisher brand that people might be used to seeing? Sure. So Eileen Fisher is already known, um, for their earth friendly clothing. Um, and the designer herself has been, um, has been active with uh, groups like Canopy, which is a fashion group that promotes uh, companies that don't engage in deforestation. Um, but a few years ago, uh, a separate store opened called Green Eileen, 
Um, and what they do is they are a separate storefront um, that sells Green Eileen clothing at a discount, but they they get clothing through um, from customers who don't wear their, their Eileen Fisher clothes anymore. They'll come back and drop the clothes off. They get a $5 uh, discount um, or credit towards the next purchase, and they... Uh, they also don't need to come into the store. Um, Green Eileen can also arrange pickups uh, for customers to make it a lot easier. So in terms of the the nuts and bolts of how the program works, how long has it been up and running? What do, How does it sort of operate day to day? Green Eileen was launched in 2009. Um, and uh, one of their spokespeople, Cynthia Power, said that the impetus was not just to do something um more responsible for the environment, but also because other brands were doing similar programs, like I mentioned, Patagonia, H&M. And uh, so right now, she gave me some statistics. Um, 2015, Green Eileen brought in 170,000 garments. That's 4% of Eileen Fisher's output. And in the future, they want to become more um, everyday part of the the business. So instead of being a separate company, um, they want to uh, become part of Eileen Fisher's larger value proposition and um, working towards becoming a 100% sustainable company. And um, so there are a couple ways that Green Eileen actually benefits Eileen Fisher as a whole. And that's because they want to embody Eileen Fisher's values, um, which is to not use the not be dependent on land-based crops and uh, in creating potentially toxic dyes and other runoff. Um, they attract new customers who are interested in lessening their environmental impact and people who just want to buy an authentic Eileen Fisher garment at a lower price. And also um, Green Eileen is profitable and adds to the bottom line of Eileen Fisher. And it has its own um, life with uh, with its separate fashion campaigns um, like we made in the USA. Hmm. And the one thing I wanted to ask about, I know um, sometimes when you're thinking about recycled materials or sort of unconventional materials across industries, I know there are some issues like in the auto industry where things sometimes the aesthetics, uh, the the products that are recycled don't look as nice as sort of virgin materials or I mean, even in automotive, there's issues with like smell and things that you might not even think about. Um, But in terms of this program through Eileen Fisher, um, how do they think about sort of ensuring the products last a long time, but also that customers sort of like them in the first place? Right. Interestingly, too, you mentioned the the you know, lack of the new car smell. That new car smell actually isn't very good for you. Um, it's a, it's a kind of the side effect of uh, some chemical processes that were used to make make the inside of the car. Um, but yeah, of course, people are really interested in you know not owning things that look vintage. They want things that look good, and that's ultimately what's going to drive the circular economy. Um, aspect of, of retail. So Green Eileen, um, the items are, first of all, they're designed from the start to be in good condition. Um, so at the beginning, Eileen Fisher's fabric team assesses the materials and textiles that are going to hold up for a long time. They are a high-end fashion company. Some of their some of the concerns of their design teams are finding panels and in, in garments uh, or creating panels and garments so that if they become stained, uh, is it easy to, to take that panel out and replace it with a, a different fabric? So you're not 
completely remaking a whole dress or shirt just because part of it has has a flaw. They have a, a couple of different ways in which the garments are resold and resold. So one, um, reworn items, they come in in perfect condition. And then there are renewed garments, which have some small damages um, that are mendable. And um, actually, they have uh, uh, Green Eileen even has an in-house uh, mending workshop for its employees. So you even start to develop this relationship with your old clothes like people used to have. You know, you'd wear a favorite garment over the decades. So we've definitely lost that, I think, with our with our modern approach to fashion. And then there are remade items. And those are old items that are completely taken apart and re, uh, reconstructed and then into uh, new new items, which is part of um, Eileen Fisher's uh, remade in the USA fashion line. Very nice. Well, like you said, this is an issue, I think, to sort of keep in the back of our head as Black Friday descends at the end of this week. Uh, and thank you very much, Anya Holomizer, for taking a few minutes. Thank you, Lauren. Happy holidays. Well, we know people have got places to be, things to eat this week, so we'll keep this episode short and sweet. Senior writer Heather Clancy, thank you again for joining us from the East Coast. Uh, Do you have any big plans for the weekend? Gotta figure out what apps I'm making, and maybe I need to spend a little bit more time looking at the labels and figuring out where they came from. Oh, I know, right? That's one of them. Gotta hold my own feet. We have a. We have an. Uh, there is a line, and just as a per, again a personal observation, there's a line out the uh, out the driveway and, and parking lot of this great organization. We have a, a, a chicken farm, a chicken and poultry farm here in my town. That is, um, they produce 100% organic, quote, sustainable chickens <laughs> and turkeys. And the line is they have to have they have to hire, hire police people to to hang out and um, direct the traffic. So it's fun. It's a, it's a neat reminder that, that, um, that local and organic um, can win over. And, and I'm, I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to having as much of my food on my table on Thanksgiving um, be local. Mm-hmm. I've got to go pick up my bird this afternoon as well. So that about does it for our Thanksgiving edition of Green Biz 350. If you've got questions, comments, or suggestions for our upcoming episodes, shoot us an email at 350 at greenbiz.com. Also, just a quick reminder to be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever else you listen to good audio. If you're feeling particularly generous this holiday season, we'd also be grateful for a quick rating or review. We'll be back with a new episode next week, but in the meantime, thanks for listening and have a great day.